0: Welcome to Exploring Hydrogen Here we will learn about all the exciting advancements, opportunities and challenges of this nascent energy sector We delve into how hydrogen can contribute to the decarbonisation of Australia and the world And investigate what it's going to take for adoption into transportation, industry and society I'm Andy Marsland, welcome to our energising journey thrilled to welcome to the podcast Tim Mayers. Tim is the head of power sales for MAN Energy Solutions for Australia and the Pacific. Tim has worked in Germany for the past 10 years as well as working in the Caribbean. He's been involved in power projects across the globe and for the past several years Tim has been involved in developing the hydrogen industry in Australia through MAN's portfolio for future fuel technology. So a very warm welcome Tim. Thank you, Andy. Thanks for having me. Good stuff. And I've known you for some time now, Tim, and I know you've got some views about how we need to change the dialogue around carbon intensity. So really look forward to digging into that one in the conversation. But first, let's kick off. So who is MAN Energy Solutions? So MAN Energy Solutions, it's a
1: big German company. We're all owned by VW. Obviously, VW has an interest in MAN, not only for us, which is Energy Solutions, but you may well have seen the trucks and buses driving around with MAN on the front as well. So that's a sister company of ours, all under the VW banner. What Energy Solutions does is the very large scale energy, things like marine and power
0: engines and turbo machinery. If we can focus perhaps on the marine sector, so what's the uh, how much of the marine sector contributes towards the carbon emissions worldwide, do you know?
1: So the marine sector in general, I think, is around the 2 to 3% of global emissions. MAN, especially in our our two-stroke engines, which power most of the world's container ships and tankers, MAN has a a very large portion of that market. So we as a company obviously have a a fairly big role to play in aiding this decarbonisation and reducing the, the fossil intensity
0: of the world. And I understand you've got quite a a broad portfolio of products. So you you mentioned about the engines, turbochargers, I believe hydrogen electrolyzers as well. Yeah. So we've
1: essentially, uh, yeah, we see there's kind of four major areas of this green transition. One being the inputs of these future fuels, the next being the generation, then the transport and storage, and finally the, you know, turning that back into work. And I guess MAN actually has some, some things in each one of these sections. So in the input section, we have electrolyzers. We recently bought an electrolyzer company, a PEM electrolyzer. And we also have a, in our industrial business, we have CO2 compression and for basically taking CO2 from industry sources. In the generation of future fuels, we actually have a reactor business where we can take, for example, hydrogen and a CO2 source and actually create things like synthetic methane or synthetic methanol. And then in the in the transport, this is back to your question before, a lot of it is around the transport of these future fuels. And I guess the marine plays a big role in that. So we have our, our marine engines. And of course, we already have a methanol engine. We're going to be in the market in 2024 with an ammonia engine. And then of course, on the the power or the turning that energy back into work, we have our engines for power plants as well, which we're looking at hydrogen, ammonia, methanol engines in the future as well.
0: Oh, wow. Interesting. Yeah. So how big is the company overall in terms of perhaps turnover or number of people? So the company is about a
1: three to four billion euro a year turnover company, MAN Energy Solutions itself. And that's a global company. We have representation in many countries throughout the world, certainly in every region. A lot of that is also related to the marine sector. So pretty much anywhere where there's a a major port, there happens to be an MAN facility. So we're truly a global company looking at how we can be part of this whole discussion on on reducing carbon intensity.
0: That's great. And with such a a broad portfolio, have you got, I mean, we could dig into any one of these areas. So yeah, perhaps if we first start talking about, you know, what's the area that you're most passionate about? Yeah. So I
1: guess my focus is on the power side, which that's traditionally been things like reciprocating power plants, but that also brings in the hydrogen and the future fuel generation. And I guess that's one of my big passions is how do we reduce our carbon intensity? And I guess one of the the challenges that I've seen is there's been a lot of discussion about net zero, 100% green, or kind of the final goal of of what we want, which is a net zero world. But how do we start moving? How do we start the first iterations and and actually making some meaningful steps to reduce our carbon? Is I think a big challenge and one thing
0: I'm very passionate about. That's a great point, Tim. And I mean, Germany for one has gone down the. The colours route, so the rainbow colours for hydrogen. So what's your views on talking carbon intensity versus talking colours of hydrogen? Colours is an interesting start. I think there's also another
1: piece of the puzzle, which is this scope one, two and three emissions that also get talked about. For me, I think we need to value carbon intensity or, or to be more specific, fossil carbon intensity. Because at the moment, the discussion is is very black and white either it's you know it's green or it's not green and i think that lends itself to somewhat of a, a punitive carbon tax only you either talk about if you're emitting carbon or not emitting carbon whereas i think if we open the discussion a little bit more and start to talk about the value of carbon intensity we can start to assign more than just a punitive cost and talk about the full value chain which is things like a company like Amazon or Google that say they want to be 100% green and they're willing to pay more for it. That's more than just offsetting a carbon tax. That's saying to their, their, their people, their employees, their customers that we're going to charge a premium, but we're going to be green. And so how do you actually assign value and start to have a transactional discussion about that? And I think a, a way forward is potentially to say, if I'm delivering you whatever my product is, if it's a tonne of concrete or cement, a a petajoule of gas or energy, there's a carbon intensity attached to it. So I say, I deliver you one petajoule of methane. It has this much energy content and the fossil intensity is X. If I deliver you now that same petajoule of of energy and my carbon intensity is 20% less, it's going to cost me more because we know anything other than fossil fuels is more expensive. But there's also more value in it for you potentially as an off taker. So then we can start to have a discussion around value and how much can they pass on to their customers or how much do they see as part of their
0: future program or their marketing. So much like, uh, I mean, dumbing it down to the layperson like myself. So going through the supermarket in the aisle of Cereals, and you get the ingredients list on on the back. So it's much the same as that of having the carbon intensity. So customers can therefore sort of choose what value that they're going to put on that carbon intensity.
1: Yeah, I I think it's a really great example, actually. That you you essentially look on the side of the box of cereal and say, "Here are my ingredients. Here is the energy content. Here is the fat content. Yeah, here are the the good and bad things involved." And I guess that's a very, very good analogy because you can then say, look, I'm delivering you this. And I guess like healthy food, healthy food tends to be a little bit more expensive, but people are willing to pay for it because they see value perceived in that. And so essentially, we're talking about the same thing that the reduction in carbon intensity is going to cost more, but if there's more perceived value, then we can do that. And I guess where we are at the moment. It's very hard to have that discussion about what value do you attach to carbon intensity. We don't really have a baseline, so we're not we're not sure actually how carbon intensive, or, or to be more precise, fossil intensive, our industries are, and and the products that we're delivering. So I guess having that baseline of understanding where we are today opens that discussion around if I can deliver you something with less intensity, what extra value is that for you?
0: And you touched upon it before about all the different future fuel options. For the listeners, would you mind sort of going through about what those options are, I guess, particularly around hydrogen, hydrogen derivatives, and what are the use cases? So, what are the positives and negatives for each? Yeah. So, I guess
1: the reason for that earlier discussion talking about carbon intensity is obviously it opens a different discussion in terms of future fuels. When you look at it from a binary green, not green, or even the colours I find can make it a little bit difficult to discuss you tend to go down the pathway of carbon is bad, therefore I shouldn't have carbon in any of my future fuels. But when you look across the entire segments, and hence my point before about talking about not only the inputs and the generation of future fuel, but the transport and storage of it, and then that ability to turn that fuel back into work, you realise it's a very complex discussion. And of course, we know the basis of the input is renewable energy, and of course, energy exists at a certain place at a certain time, and we need it at a different place in a different time to turn it back into work. But keeping it as electrons is definitely not a good way to to store and transport energy. And so, I think quite rightly, most people in Australia and the world have have come across the idea that hydrogen is a very a very good first step. So that's converting those electrons and energy back into a molecule. That you can both store and transport. But that opens the next point, which is then how do we store and transport and how do we turn it back into work? So, obviously, ammonia and hydrogen have gotten a lot of discussion in Australia in the past couple of years because they don't have a carbon. And from the inputs and even the generation, it seems quite logical. But once you start to bring in that transport, and storage piece. And then the ability to turn those fuels back into work, it's a lot more complicated. So ammonia, for example, has, I think it's about a third the energy density of diesel. It is toxic. It does need a, not a whole lot, but a little bit of cryogenic and pressure to to transport it. But we also don't have the infrastructure in the scale that's required. And then the ability to turn ammonia back into work is... Limited and and still in its infancy as well. Hydrogen is probably even more difficult given the, uh, the extreme nature of, of hydrogen. It needs to be, I think it's minus 253 degrees Celsius for, for it to become liquid. So we need an entirely new infrastructure and of a scale that can actually take the energy that we need to transmit. So that's got a big challenge. So I think some of the other options, things like methanol and methane, I think, need a bigger discussion in, in this decarbonization and reducing carbon intensity because we essentially have the infrastructure in a scale that exists to transport and use these fuels and the ability to turn these fuels back into work exists or is, is much more advanced. So it, it opens the pathway to this iterative type approach. But again, if, if we look at it from the binary green, not green, we see that there is a carbon in the system and hence why we need to move past you know, carbon, not carbon, and actually talk about how fossil-intensive is that energy I'm delivering you.
0: Yes, yeah. And there's some really good technologies coming through on that about taking the carbon out of the methane at, at source. So, yeah, early stages at, at the moment. I mean, the from what I've seen, the data out of those looking promising, but, yeah, nowhere near the, near the scale. However, as you say, using the existing infrastructure of the uh, of the gas networks
1: Yeah. So there's a few different ways to go. I mean, the one thing that we have learnt is there is no silver bullet. There's not one solution. There's not one fuel that's going to save us as a a planet from this carbon dilemma we're in. It's going to be myriad different solutions and each one is going to have different pros and cons. And if we get away from this binary black and white, using methane, or using methanol that do have carbon in them, and even if they're not completely green, but it's a lower carbon intensity or fossil intensity than today, that's a meaningful start. And the technology that we develop in producing these fuels, we're going to need for the next iteration and the next iteration. And so, I guess the two points on that, one I'll touch on in a second, which is the commercial contractual, but firstly on the technical side, the reactors already exist to take... A hydrogen source and a CO2 source and turn it into synthetic methane or synthetic methanol. So from a technological perspective, we kind of have some of those first iterations already there. That's not to say that they're in their final efficiencies or, or they're, they're as good as they're going to get, but at least it's the first iteration, I think, in reducing our intensity. But I think the even more important thing is it's going to take us a lot of years to come up with a way that we can handle it commercially and transactionally. Because if I'm now delivering you this petajoule of gas and it's this carbon intensity, how do I handle that contractually and commercially? Let's say next year I put in as technologies like direct air capture of carbon become more viable, maybe I add 2% direct air capture of carbon next year. I'm delivering you the same amount of gas. My costs have gone up. My carbon intensity has gone down. Presumably the value has also changed. So we also need probably a few iterations from contracts and transactions to work out how we're going to handle a system where we're effectively accounting for the carbon a lot more closely.
0: Yeah, great point. And I think the there's a lot of work being done behind the scenes on the certification side of things on the blockchain but uh, like you say how that kind of you know links into the um, into the contractual aspects of it and the commerciality. Yeah.
1: I guess and I'm not involved enough in in all of the details on the certification but from what I have seen so far a lot of the certification has been around greenness or and a lot to do is with, with hydrogen per se but I guess what I'm suggesting is maybe one step back from that and looking about more of a carbon accounting as opposed to a, a green accounting, if that makes sense. It's a very subtle distinction, yeah, yes, but yeah. I think that talking about greenness, we tend to go down the path of these colours as you talk about talking about fossil intensity is more about attaching a, a value to whatever product it is I'm delivering, which is perhaps a little bit different yeah you know, i hope that there's a lot of people in the certification industry that are already thinking along these these areas but i think it's it's a way that we can move forward because we're talking about value and commercial side of it not just a technology
0: yeah absolutely yeah you touched before about energy efficiency and one of the biggest reservations that i hear about the hydrogen sector is the poor efficiency at this stage and and the fact that you've got to if we're talking about producing hydrogen from solar or wind, you've got to use those electrons to produce hydrogen. You're losing energy at that stage, and then you've got to convert it back at the end. But I think those discussions or those concerns, they're missing the point somewhat in that hydrogen is a vector, so getting that energy from one place to another, or certainly those areas of the market that are hard to decarbonize without having that that intensity of, so for example, heavy transportation, industrial feedstocks, industrial heat. Yeah, I think that's a
1: a fantastic point. And it actually touches back on what we talked about before, which is energy existing at a certain place at a certain time, and you need it at a different place and at a different time. And um, electrons aren't great for that piece of the discussion. Of course, electrons can be transported via transmission line, but that's pretty much for use immediately and relatively locally. We're not suggesting that we put a transmission line from here to Japan to try and get our, our renewable energy there. So I think at some point, you kind of need to take your, the engineer hat off, which says the efficiency of this system is terrible, and then take one more step back and say, well, what is it that we're trying to do? We're trying to deliver energy in a more green or, or a less carbon intensive way from A to B. And so that talk about efficiency, it's very real, but it's very real when you can convert it more into a commercial sense, because essentially efficiency is another way of talking about cost.
0: Yes. And I'm not sure if you've read Bill Gates' book, How to Avoid a Climate Change Disaster, and I'm all up for the the iterative approach. One of the points that uh, Gates makes in that book is that we need to focus with the end of net zero in mind and whilst it's all very well and good promoting technologies that may be only able to reduce that carbon output by 50% we're kind of if that's as far as we can go we might be left with stranded assets and it might delay the full conversion if we go down a particular technology route are you seeing that concern in in the market or are there any areas that you're aware of that we might be Kind of going down the wrong path. I
1: think there's. It's an interesting point. I'm, I'm certainly not going to claim that um, you know <laughs> what Bill Gates saying is is not right. I think yeah, that's a very valid point that we need to we need to have an end goal in mind, which is net zero. But we also need to live in in today and live in 2022, not live in a in a hopeful future where at some point eventually we'll get to this net zero. So I guess my perspective is more around. We need to start somewhere. We don't need to necessarily say we're going to do a mega project that's going to solve all of our problems in one hit. And I think one of the, the major reasons for that is is who is going to pay for that. You know, we're looking at how do we decarbonize in one step is going to require enormous investment. And quite frankly, we can't have governments being the the sole drivers of this. We need private industry and we need private investment and finance to be part of the discussion. But if it takes you billions of dollars before you can deliver your first drop of green energy, greener energy, that financial barrier to entry is is enormous because now you're talking about amortization rates of 15, 20, 30 years, which means that it sits solely in the governments. I mean, I don't know of many industries these days, which would, or private companies, which would be happy with a a 30 year amortization (laughs) of their project. So I understand the sentiment that we don't want to just sell ourselves short, but to get moving today, we need to have projects that we can amortize in three to five years. For that, we actually need projects that are not as ambitious. Because you know, we're not talking about multi-billion dollar projects, we're maybe talking about multi-million dollar or, or 10 or 100 million dollar projects that we can then go to the financial world and say, look, I can amortize it in, in five years. What I learned from this one, I can move on to the next one with. So I think you know, that's one of the key points for me is that iteration is not just from a technical perspective, but very much from a, a commercial and contractual perspective as well. And I guess to answer the other point of your question is, what are we seeing in the industry? I guess from an Australian perspective, it seems to be playing out that way. A lot of the mega projects from even two years ago seem to be less on the boil or or there's less enthusiasm around them than there was a couple of years ago. And and I'm not going to mention any specific one, but I'm sure a lot of the, the listeners know of these mega projects where we're in one step trying to deliver Enormous amounts of energy from A to B. And until everything exists from the renewables, from the production of future fuels, from the transport, from the ability to take it at the other end, until all of those chain links are are in place, we can't deliver one packet of this green energy. And I
0: think that's one of the big hurdles. What else is holding MAN back as a company from further development? I guess one of the big challenges is precisely this, that at
1: the moment, there is no real value in reducing carbon intensity. It's cheaper and easier to use fossil fuels, and anything other than that is going to be more expensive. So that commercial imperative doesn't quite exist at the moment. It's really the projects that we're seeing and talking about is more around virtue signaling or dipping the toe in the green the green lake but not really jumping in. And so I guess that's one of the big challenges that we see is you know, we have some very good technology, especially around things like utilising the carbon that we're already using for industry. And, and I guess something like a cement industry is a good example. You know, they're very hard to abate. They emit a lot of CO2. Why not take that CO2, combine it with renewable hydrogen, and then you've got a, a much less carbon-intensive energy carrier in methane, in methanol, whatever it is, that you can then use to transport that energy to somewhere else in the world. So we know that those technologies exist, but at the moment, getting anything more than than a bit of lip service on, great idea. We're not quite ready commercially to think about that. And I guess that's our big challenge.
0: Yeah. And what's the first step then to move away from that? Are you starting to have the conversations with your your customers? Are they starting to turn up the heat, as it were, or put the pressure on in terms of the tenders that you're bidding for as a company? What's the long-term plan and what's the energy intensity of those projects?
1: I guess the two areas of focus for our discussion is the power industry then and, and the industrial industries like cement making. And on the power side, it's more about not having stranded assets. So most of the tenders we're seeing these days have at least a question around hydrogen. And when we're talking land base and, and especially things like using gas fired power plants at the moment, the logical pathway is to talk about hydrogen and hydrogen blending and eventually getting to a pure hydrogen engine. So we're seeing that a lot in tenders now where end users want to know that they're not going to have a stranded asset in five or 10 years. They want to know that if hydrogen does become available in a big enough amount, can we use it in our engines? And the short answer is yes, we can at at 25% at the moment. And within about the next three to five years, we expect that we'll have 100% hydrogen engines, which means that there's more confidence around going to investors, going to the boards to say, look, I'm I'm going to put in a gas-fired power plant now, but I know that as hydrogen becomes more viable, I can retrofit, I can make sure that I don't have a stranded asset. The second area, which is the, the industrial areas like cement making, that's a little bit different that it's not about stranded assets as much as the risk of them still having an industry in the future. And so they see carbon as their single biggest concern and how are they going to be either taxed or regulated or, or you know, do they even have a an industry in the future? So they're looking at what technologies exist or what pathways exist that they can use to to ensure that they can remain viable as an industry and also fulfill targets and, and goals that both the world has, but also their own companies have in terms of reducing carbon intensity. And so they're looking at it from a slightly different perspective, which is more of a a risk of them having a viable business plan as opposed to a risk in power of having a stranded asset.
0: Yeah, that's a really good point. And I've been involved in the hydrogen sector for probably about three years now. And so much of the discussion with a lot of the the big emitters is, yes, we realize that we need to decarbonize, we don't want to be first mover we want to be second or third so to take away that risk of having the stranded assets and you know it's a difficult one to overcome you do need some some thought leaders some some people who are prepared to take in take that investment forward and it does need government on board to get it to that sort of critical mass
1: yeah and i think you you touched on a really good point there's in a way a first mover disadvantage <laughs> because the first projects are probably always going to be more expensive and and whatever you're producing of if it's some sort of future fuel is probably going to be more expensive than than future iterations. So how do you handle that challenge? Well, most companies are saying I'll be a fast second mover, but I'll let someone else put in the more expensive plant and I'll take generation 2. And I guess that is where governments need to need to step up and say look I'm I'm willing to to help out getting the generation 1 of these future fuel plants going. So that generation two onwards, the industries are a little bit more willing and, and viable to start moving on it.
0: What else do you think needs to happen then to for Australia's hydrogen and decarbonisation ambitions to be realised? Is there any particular areas of policy change or regulations that you've identified? I think
1: certainly around this carbon intensity and, and fossil intensity and, and how we can get that discussion into it. And I guess I'm not involved enough in policy making to know exactly how we do it. But like you said, with the cereal box, I think that's a good analogy. That'd be a nice start because then not only in government levels and in regulation levels, but certainly in, in boardrooms and in, in sales conferences, we can talk about what's on the outside of the cereal box and what value there is. So I think that's a big starting point. As you, you touched on before, the first mover disadvantage is, is a big challenge. And so. We also need to have government involved in in helping that, and and I think the government is trying to do a very good job there in terms of arena funding and and CFC and some of the other the other avenues to try and get these early projects going. There's a perception that hydrogen is going to get really cheap as we put more technology in, because that's what's happened with renewables. But hydrogen is not capex driven to the same extent that renewables were. So this idea that in the future we're going to get super cheap hydrogen I think is is not going to happen because um, it relies on renewable energy and I don't think renewable energy is getting that much cheaper than it is
0: today. I think one of the other challenges is the cost of some of these projects as we touched upon earlier. Have you got any further comments on that?
1: Yeah, I think it's it's one of the interesting points that I've had this discussion on a little bit is the renewable industry has gone through a very rapid cost reduction over the last 20 to 30 years. And I hear a lot of these discussions in the hydrogen industry as well, that, well, you know, the first project's going to be expensive, but the cost curve is going to come down rapidly and we're going to get very cheap hydrogen in the future. I have to admit, I'm a little bit sceptical of this point. Not that the CapEx is going to reduce. I think the price of electrolyzers, the price of the plant itself will reduce over the years with hydrogen. But the difference between renewables and hydrogen production is the renewables is very much a CapEx-driven project. So once you've installed the solar panels or the wind farms, the cost of running them and the cost of producing the energy on an OPEX level is is relatively low. So if you can drive that CapEx cost down, the cost in its entirety comes down. In the hydrogen industry, I think it's going to be a little bit more challenging Because yes, we can drive the capex down of, of the hydrogen production and the hydrogen plants, but it's still most of the costs is in the electricity that we need to produce green hydrogen. And so if the renewable industry is close to the bottom of the curve in terms of their costs, which in my opinion, I think is about right. I'd say if anything, the future pressure on renewable projects in terms of material price, in terms of labor, in terms of construction, is probably that I expect renewable projects will probably start to get a little bit more expensive, in which case the costs that we're seeing in terms of a PPA or in terms of the energy price that a hydrogen project would have probably isn't going to get cheaper. So that forms somewhat of a a barrier for how cheap we can produce hydrogen. And I think that's one of the really big challenges is the idea of $2 a kilo hydrogen or, or you know, putting out some sort of number that needs to be hit before the industry becomes viable is a concern for me in our communication because what happens if we can actually never achieve that number that we're touting is needed to be achieved for it to all make sense? What happens then? What happens if if we wake up and realise that actually the cheapest we're ever going to get hydrogen is $5 a kilogram? Now all of a sudden, these forward projections on at some point hydrogen's going to make sense and pay for itself. Now it's not. Now we need to come up with another way of of valuing the greenness. And, and so I think that's one of the big challenges now that um, government and regulation faces is if we don't end up with the cheap hydrogen like was being touted
0: but we still need to decarbonise, how are we going to do it? So with that in mind then, your thoughts around uh- – A carbon equalization tax structure, then?
1: And I guess that's, I guess my central theme is coming back to this valuing carbon or fossil intensity. I think that's for me the only meaningful way I can see forward at the moment in the discussion, then, which is rather than assigning the value of hydrogen or of essentially the renewables, value the carbon itself. And I guess the other aspect of that is at some point, carbon becomes more and more valuable because. Everything that we have, including ourselves and all of our organic material that we use in the world has carbon involved. So I think carbon per se is not the problem. It's, it's the coming from a fossil sink into the atmosphere is really the challenge that we're trying to tackle and make sure that not more carbon from a carbon sink to air is being released than what the earth is able to consume back into carbon sinks. Yeah. Really good point. So I think that really just opens the door again that we need to talk about carbon intensity rather than, than hydrogen per se, but that's not to take anything away from hydrogen because I think hydrogen is, is very much a key piece of the future, but the discussions around the cost and, and the transactions I think are a little bit more nuanced and subtle than we're currently
0: giving it. Either through your work at MAN or more broadly and you I know you're well read and researched in the energy industry are there any specific technologies that you're excited about at the moment that the listeners would be interested to hear about
1: Certainly in the the ammonia space I know ammonia has its challenges I think what's really interesting so I think from 2024 MAN's going to have an ammonia engine for two stroke I'd say the initial case for that is going to be Ammonia ships in the future will probably burn fuel, such as in the methanol industry, pretty much all methanol tankers these days use methanol then to power themselves. So I think the technology in terms of how do we turn some of these future fuels into work is a really interesting space. I think the future fuel production itself is still in its infancy, so there's another project that MAN has been involved in with another sister company of ours, Porsche, has been doing a project in Chile called Haru Oni. Um, MAN were a, a sub supplier of certain technology, so we, we didn't own the process. But the project in summary is essentially taking direct air capture of carbon and renewable energy to make hydrogen and create methanol out of that, green or synthetic methanol and then convert that methanol into synthetic gasoline. And so I think that some of those new technologies and pathways to create fuels and, and systems that we currently have, so we don't need to completely change, I guess, globally, three billion car users' ways of transporting in one step. Maybe we can green the fuels and allow a longer transition of people from you know, fossil fuel cars to hybrids, to batteries, to whatever else, you know, hydrogen or whatever else the future cars could be. So I think that greening of the, the fuel sources is very much in its infancy in terms of the latest iteration.
0: And where do you think we're going to be in, say, 10 years' time? I hope we're a lot further along the road. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I hope that this discussion around carbon has
1: gone further so that some of these projects that we're talking about are actually in operation. I think in 10 years' time, the biggest challenge will be still around the the cost and still around the commercial side of it. But if, if we have a, enough projects and enough movement in talking about the carbon intensity and how do we reduce it, I can actually see in 10 years' time, we will have made some meaningful steps. In 10 years' time, have we got that net zero already in our focus? I'm not sure. My gut feel would say... It's still off in the distance and it's still over the horizon, but at least if we're getting that carbon transaction closer towards zero, as in we're not using quite as much carbon relative to what the earth can consume back, then I think we've made some meaningful steps. I think the developing countries is going to be a really big challenge because, as we've said, any of these new technologies are more... More costly, and you know, countries like China and India and, and a lot of the developing countries, they still need access to cheap power for kind of their first generation of development. So I think that's going to be one of the big challenges. Still, is is not cutting off the the carbon in a way that the disadvantages huge swaths of of the world, but done in a way that we can iterate our way and keep the value for as many people
0: as we can in the world. Yeah, fantastic. Where can the audience find out or follow what MAN is is doing? And I presume you've got a website that we can put on the uh, the show notes and uh, the project that you mentioned, Chile. I thought that was a really interesting one as well. Uh, Is there a project website for that one?
1: There is. So we can put all that in the details afterwards. A lot of what MAN does is obviously on MAN's website. So if you look up MAN Energy Solutions, you can get to a lot of the details. There's obviously quite a few LinkedIn articles and MAN is quite good at when there's new updates putting it in into LinkedIn. So if you want to follow MAN on LinkedIn, that's a good way to see some of the new technologies. And I guess a lot of it is to do with the overall groundswell of, of this discussion. So that the more that we have these discussions, the more that we have these conferences, the more some of this knowledge that exists in in various parts of the world and in, in various projects flows across international borders and and countries like Australia start to hear what's happening in Chile or what's happening in in North America. And so I think these these conferences and these discussions across international
0: borders is going to help. Yeah, fantastic. Thanks so much, Tim. Really appreciate your time. We've covered so much from the macro to the micro. Appreciate you sharing your thoughts. Fascinating discussion and wish you all the best for the future. Thank you very
1: much, Andy, and and really appreciate the time and also the format that you're doing. I think it's a really good way to to get this discussion a little bit further in the country.
0: Cheers. I'm Andy Marsland. Hope you enjoyed the show. Thanks for joining us on the Hydrogen Journey. We welcome you to join us at our next episode. Please remember to subscribe and review the show and hope to see you next time.